we have been walking through First Peter uh, for seven weeks now, seven weeks. This is the seventh week if you've been keeping count, uh, and we've been walking through this book of First Peter. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. First Peter chapter three. Uh, that's where we're going to be at today. If you've got your phones, your Bibles, whatever, I think it's also going to be on the screens behind me here as we as we go through this in just a moment. Uh, we've covered several topics over the past several seven weeks, but but really everything has centered around one idea. All right, in light of one theological distinctive. Okay, Peter is encouraging those who are persecuted and suffering. That's the big idea. Be encouraged in your persecution, in your suffering. Be encouraged in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection. And Peter focuses specifically on the resurrection because it's not just enough that, that Jesus uh, came and that he lived a sinless life. It's not just enough that he, that he died on our behalf. He also rose again, and it's that action that defeated death. And so Peter focuses on that. He says, this is why we have hope, because God is not dead. All right? He didn't stay in the tomb. He didn't die, and he's not buried. He's, he's not there anymore. He rose again. And because of that, we have hope as a people. And so this is, this is the theme that we see all throughout uh, this book, uh, this letter that he wrote. So now we've come to the section in 1 Peter, uh, which houses one of the most difficult passages to interpret in all of Scripture. Last week was kind of, so, so three weeks ago was kind of difficult because we talked about a little bit of political stuff, and, and that's, 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 you know, just, that's like throwing nitro on a fire in this day and age, and so that was a little tough. And then last week we talked about some, some tough content. Uh, we kind of got into, you know, uh, sort of some roles and, and some things with, with men and women, and, and that's, that's a little bit of a difficult, today's topic is difficult because it's literally one of the most theologically difficult passages in all of Scripture. So I hope you're ready for that. This passage has boggled more minds and caused more scholars to scratch their heads than perhaps any other in Scripture. Yet, I believe rightly understood, it's meant to offer great comfort and encouragement to us as believers. Um, that passage is going to come a little bit later on at the end of the message. What we're covering today, what we're attempting to cover today, I should say, uh, is, is really is so much content, uh, it could probably be like four separate sermons. And so uh, if you've got your pens and your paper ready and you want to write down, like just get ready because we're going to kind of go through this a little quickly, but we're going to try to cover just everything I feel like uh, God's kind of laid on my heart to cover here this morning. So I hope you're ready to learn and grow and be stretched in your faith and encouraged in, in maybe the perseverance you might be facing. So Ultimately, this is a summary passage. Okay, it begins. It says, uh, to basically, uh, it's, it's going to be there on the screen. The Verse 8 is where we're starting at. Uh, he's saying, finally, all of you. So basically, he's kind of beginning with this idea is, uh, to sum up. All right, to sum up everything I've talked about. Finally, we're going we're gonna to put a bow on it. We're going to wrap this up for you. Everything we've talked about for the first uh, two and a half chapters Right, we're going to sum this up, have unity of mind, etc., etc. And then there follows a list of some central qualities of a Christian life. Some godly virtues that Christians are called to exemplify. And, and it, it's, it's Peter's method to teach and then go back and gather up the great principles he's been stressing and then restate them in, in a different way. So in this section from verse 8 to the end of the chapter... Uh, Peter underscores, uh, really from verse 8 to about uh, 13, 14 or so, um, he, he underscores what I believe are four great qualities every Christian should exhibit in the face of adversity. And then, he follow, then, and then after that follows a statement about the power which makes that possible, which makes this, this kind of life actually possible. All right, so whenever we read any section in 1 Peter, we need to, to bear in mind that the context of this book is that of, of suffering injustice. 
right? That's the whole context. That's that's who he's writing to. He's writing to the people that are that are dispersed uh, throughout Asia Minor and they're suffering injustice. the The world is being very cruel to to Christians at this point. And so uh, they're, they're really, they're, there are people that are dying. There are people that are losing their homes, losing their families. There are people that, that are struggling to make a living just because of their beliefs. And so they're suffering. They're having a very, very tough time. And he's writing in light of that. Uh, and so it's written to people that are being mistreated. They're being persecuted. Their lives so filled with stress, not because they were unrighteous, mind you, but because they were righteous. And it's against this backdrop of misunderstanding and injustice that Peter writes to encourage and instruct them. He wants to let them know there is a God who cares, who loves you, who died for you and rose again. And we have hope in him. So he begins in verse 8 with a call to gracious and forgiving conduct in the face of adversity. So let's, we're going to read uh, these uh, several verses together and then I'm going to kind of go back and talk about them. We're going to start in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to you, uh, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him speak peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do all, who do evil. Uh, Verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So straight away, right as we open up this, right as we get in this, we see that this is essentially a call to good behavior. I mean, honestly, if we're reading this at the very beginning, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, uh, humble mind, we're seeing like kind of a call to good behavior. It's an exhortation to be unified, to be sympathetic, to be brotherly, to be kind-hearted in the face of treatment that might be unjust. Now, we would all agree that this is one thing uh, to be this way when people act graciously towards you. It's a whole other thing to embody these ideas and to be this way whenever somebody is is unjustly attacking you, whenever you have some injustice happening in your life, when you have a mistreatment going on in your life, it's very hard. It's hard to respond this way when people do not respond to us this way. It's difficult. But Peter's saying that it is possible for us to respond with excellence despite the way people might treat us. Now, I know this isn't Anyone in here, of course, but some people in the world tend to justify their poor reactions when people don't behave the right way toward them. None of you guys I know, but some people tend to do this. For example, if we're a teenager growing up in a family where we feel like our parents are, maybe, maybe, they're, maybe we feel like they're harsh or unloving, it's easy for us to justify rebelling, right? It's easy for us to justify that. Because, well, if they're going to treat me this way, then I'm going to, I'm going to you know, treat them this way. I'm going, to, I'm going to come back at them. It's easy to justify that. We feel like it's only right. Or if we're married and our husband or wife is not responding the right way, it seems that we can justify anger or passive aggressiveness or the silent treatment. Married couples, you know what I'm talking about? It's, it's easy for us to justify that sometimes. 
Sometimes we even go a step further and we call our friends to share what the significant other is doing, how it's rubbing you the wrong way, how it's, how it's an injustice in your life, and then they'll justify you and they'll, they'll kind of say, you know, like, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. If that was my man, he'd be on the couch for like a week. We justify. We want, we want justification in our actions. Or let's say this, we feel slightly or grossly unfairly compensated in our job. What do we do? We justify slacking off. We justify cutting corners. We justify doing the bare minimum because we, f- we feel like, well, if this is all they're giving us, this is all they're giving me, then I'm, I'm justified in this. Here's what Peter says. Don't do that. No matter how adverse your circumstances may be, no matter how unrighteous those in authority over us might be, we must be sympathetic and humble. And that is hard. Am I right? Are you guys with me? Is that hard? Okay, a couple people feel that way. That's hard. So let's break down each one of these real quick. They're essentially, these are essentially our duties, I believe, to other believers, but honestly, to everyone as well, uh, because it says all of you. It says, finally, all of you, right? So here's, here's kind of some of the things that it talks about. Uh, it says, have unity of mind. Have unity of mind. That this is basically to, to be united in the same purpose, the same goal. Right to be moving toward the same thing. Jesus prayed for this kind of unity in John 17, uh, 20 and 21. He says, "I do not ask for these only, uh, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and and may believe uh, that you have sent me." How can we have this unity of mind in a world that is so divided? It's a question I was kind of asking myself as I was working through this. In a world that's, that's so divided, in a country that's so divided, how do we have unity of mind? Ultimately, I think that's only attainable only to the extent that we all submit to the will of God. So therefore, we all need to make God's will our will. We all need to make God's purpose our purpose. We need to have a kingdom mindset because that's the mindset that God has. Right? So that's the direct, if we all have that in mind, if we have that goal, then we can, we can have unity. It doesn't matter what denomination you are. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't, none of that matters if we have a unity in mind. We have a positive direction toward Jesus Christ that we're moving. A unity of mind. I love that. The other one, the next one, it says a sympathy. We should all have sympathy. Does anybody have a tough time showing sympathy? There's a couple people, a couple honest people in the house. Okay. All right. It's, it's, it's kind of hard sometimes. Having compassion for each other is a little, a little tough sometimes. But what, here's what this means. I kind of thinking through this idea of sympathy. It means at the ver- bare minimum, if, 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 you, if, you, if you just really get down to the base meaning and idea of, of what he's getting at, it means to have pity or a feeling of distress toward the ills of others have pity or or the feeling of distress toward the ills of others it's interesting uh, it's it's this disposition having this this disposition this idea of of sympathy being moved by the problems of others sickness hardships trials struggles you know jesus he had sympathy during his earthly ministry and he demonstrated it so well Right? He went out and he had sympathy. 
He, he saw those in need. He looked through the crowd and he saw the one that needed him. Even, even when the crowds were so big, he could still spot somebody and he could find out if they needed them based on, obviously he's God, so he knows, but Matthew 9, 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. A sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion. He saw these people and he said, these people need what I'm bringing. These people need what I have. He's, and, and the idea of him having compassion, okay, he's having sympathy. That means he is feeling distress toward the ills of others. Jesus feels distress toward your ills, toward what's going on in your life, your frustrations, your suffering, your hardships. He feels sympathy toward it. He relates to it and, it, and it hurts him. It hurts his heart. How amazing that we have a God that loves us to that extent. Brotherly love goes on. I think this attribute is essential if we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ as talked about a little bit later on in 2 Peter. And if we're to convince the world that we are true disciples of Christ, we have to love one another. We have to love each other. John 13, 35, we've gone over this verse before, but it says, by this all people will know that you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. Brotherly love is essential. We need to be able to love one another and show the world that we do love one another. It also calls for a tender heart. This is the kind of heart that is compassionate, capable of loving our brothers and sisters. All right, we need to have that tender heart because it's hard to do the other if we don't have this heart. We got to have a tender heart that is capable of loving our brothers and sisters. What's the opposite of that? Well, I guess the opposite of that would be cold-hearted, where we're, we're completely insensitive to the needs and feelings of others. We're just cold-hearted. We're, we're, we can't even think about it or look at it or it doesn't even come to mind. And then lastly, he says we need to have a humble heart. Literally, this means to be friendly of mind. I love that. A humble mind, to be friendly of mind. That's such a neat phrase. Christians are to imitate Jesus Christ and not think so highly of themselves that they cannot be kind and courteous to others. So he kind of gives us these five things. Right out, right, right out the gate, right? Right off the bat. He, he gives us these, these five things. He says, this is our command. These are the things that we need to do. This is, this is, these aren't suggestions. This is a lifestyle. Let's go for it. This is what we need to do. These are the things that Peter says we should be doing both in good times and in bad. All right. When we get a bonus check and when we're struggling to pay the bills, when we're in a great relationship and whenever our significant other leaves us, when we're healthy and happy, and when we're sick and, and we're distressed. Church, there is no statute of limitations or qualifications on us for when we are supposed to act like Jesus. The answer is always. All of us, all the time. That's when we're supposed to act like Jesus. That's what these qualities are, acting like Jesus. So Peter goes on and he says that we're to do all of this because there are certain things which naturally follow, okay? You do these things, th this is a progression. There's gonna be things that are gonna follow. And one is that we receive a blessing. God is a just God and simply put, he will bless those who bless others. Verse nine says it plainly. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling with reviling. I don't know if you've reviled anybody lately, but don't do that. But on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. If you bless, you will be blessed. 
All right, so then Peter spends the next few verses going back to, to Psalm 34, and he tells us what that blessing is. It's stated uh, in, in this expression in verse 10. He says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. I think I love the first part. That's what we all want, right? Like the first part of this, like whoever desires to love life and see good days. I want that. I want to love life. I want to see, I want to see good days. I love good days. I want to be able to look back on a day and say, this has been a good day. Great things happened today. Life is great. That's what we want. We want that. We don't want to have to go home and, you know, feel like this day has been a bummer. This day has been terrible. Here's Peter's point. It is not the circumstances which make the day bad. It's our attitude toward the circumstances. All right? It's not the circumstances that make the day bad. It's our attitude toward the circumstances. Good days are determined by our attitude toward those around us. All right, we must, as Peter says, keep our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. Then he goes on in verse 11. He says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Because if we do that, believers, verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. He sees us. He hears us. And we have that sense of his, his presence, which makes possible this entirely different perspective on life. How do we get this blessing? How do we live in this way? We do these things, right? We move in this direction. We, we, we make this a part of who we are. We allow the Holy Spirit to work in this way. We don't allow our circumstances to dictate our attitudes. We want to have positive attitudes. We want to be of humble mind. We want to have a tender heart. We want to show brotherly love. There's a second thing that Peter says will happen if we have this attitude toward those who harm or misuse us. We see that in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who's going to actually hurt you if you're pursuing good things? Who can hurt you if you're following after me? Who can do it? Under normal circumstances, I believe this is Peter's point, under normal circumstances, those who abuse you, those that harm you, those that slander you or mistreat you or leave you or fill in the blank, whatever you're thinking right now, the rule of thumb is that they will correct their behavior if you do what is right. A rule of thumb. Now, we'll leave that there because we know that that's not always true. Right? We know that's not, we know that's not always true. It can't be. I know that many of you have felt that you've been doing the right thing for months, for years, for, for decades maybe, and that person hasn't changed, that, that person's behavior hasn't changed. You know what? There are some people who are so hardened and resistant to the truth that nothing that you do will change them. But this verse tells us that normally if we behave in this way, in our, in the, the, if, we, if we don't allow our circumstance to affect our attitude, if we repay evil with good, and if we turn the other cheek, if we reply with a soft answer when someone addresses us with a harsh word, normally they will not harm us. And ultimately, even if they do harm us, it will not be lasting, and God will surely bless. So just remember that the next time someone cuts you off in traffic, 
Put that in the back of your head. Next time someone talks behind your back, just think about this for a second. God is a just God. Also remember that for yourself as well. So this was the first quality of life that Peter stresses to us. All right, I said there were four qualities I believe he lists out uh, in these first verses. This was the first one we just covered. We must respond to injustice with grace and forgiveness. That was, that was point number one that we just hit on. We must respond to injustice with grace and forgiveness. The second characteristic is given in verses 14 and 15. So I'm going to read those uh, once more, but even, or, <clears throat> or read those uh, afresh. Here we go. Uh, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Again, there it is. You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason uh, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. All right, the second quality I believe that we should exhibit is fearlessness, an untroubled heart, a quiet, restful spirit. We're going to take a page out of our core values as a church, and we're going to put it this way. Number two, uh, we need to be lion chasers. We need to be lion chasers, church. Why do I say that? First Chronicles 11, uh, 22 through 23. It's also mentioned a little bit later, also mentioned in Samuel, 2 Samuel as well, but uh, we'll just read this um, this, this account. It's talking about a guy named Benaniah. All right, Benaniah uh, is, is mentioned a little bit here and there in Scripture. He doesn't have a lot of face time in the Word, but whenever he does have face time, it talks about some pretty interesting things that happen with him. Uh, he was a doer of great deeds, it says uh, in First Chronicles 11, 22. Uh, he struck down two heroes of Moab. He also went down and struck, uh, he also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen, and he struck down an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits tall. The Egyptian had in his hand a spear like a weaver's beam, but Benaniah went down to him with a staff, snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. That's a man. All right? That's, I mean, that's some action movie stuff. Like, I want to see that on the big screen. I want to see a film about Ben and I, even though that's all it gives us. I mean, that would be enough. That, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty good storyline right there, all of the killing and all that stuff. Like, that's a pretty good storyline. Um, the part I want to look at for just a moment, though, because I don't want to get too far off topic since we have still seven more verses to cover and we haven't even hit the hard ones yet, is when Ben and I killed the lion. And this is where we pull this idea of being lion chasers from. See, Ben and I chased a lion. Pause. It says he chased a lion. I mean, that's enough for me. Who is chasing lions? Who is out there pursuing lions? They, he didn't have a gun. There were no guns. There was, he had probably like a spear or something. I mean, and even if he threw that spear at this lion, it probably was just going to like bounce off or, or stick in there and the lion's going to keep coming. I mean, he's not going to be able to stop the lion. I mean, my bet is on the 500-pound lion over the dude every time, every single time. But Benaniah chased this lion into a pit. Keep that in mind, all right? It wasn't even out on the plane. It wasn't, it wasn't just like, you know, he didn't chase him like into the town. He chased him into a pit. Seems like a closed off dark space in the ground, if you ask me. If it was a ditch, it would have said a ditch. If it was a depression, it would have said a depression. No, it says a pit. He chased him down into the pit. 
Did you know that a lion's vision is five times better than a human's vision, even at 2020? They have better night vision than we are. I give the lion the advantage here. <laughs> Not only that, he chased the lion into a pit on a snowy day. And I guarantee that a sure-footed lion with cat-like reflexes gains the upper paw in snowy, slippery conditions. <laughs> guarantee it. Guarantee it. It's going to happen. Without going too much deeper into that story, because we'll save that for another time, we need to be like Benaniah. We need to chase the lions. Knowing that the God of the universe is on our side, we need to be fearless. We need to have no fear and not be troubled, but instead honor Jesus and know that he is for us. You see, he, he, he's quoting this stuff. He's, he's quoting this, uh, f- this, this idea of, of being fearless uh, where, where he says, um, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. All right, so, so he's, he's kind of doing a little throwback to the Old Testament here. He's, he's, he's saying something that the people understand. They know this story, and, and, and he's kind of doing a little harken back to uh, the days of King Uzziah, all right, and, and the prophet Isaiah. So, so King Uzziah dies, and his son Ahaz basically takes over. Now, now, Uzziah was a man after God's own heart. He said, in God we trust, while King Ahaz said, uh, no, in Assyria we trust. He wanted to make a deal with Assyria so that uh, they would come in and be the protectors. He, and his defense, he wanted to protect the land of Judah, right? So he wanted to protect it. And so uh, here's what happened, though. Uh, Isaiah freaked out. Uzziah's gone. Ahaz is in power. Uh, Isaiah is just like freaking out and he doesn't know what's going to happen. He's afraid. He thinks that bad things are going to happen. And God kind of gives him this vision and says, you know what? It's going to be okay. Have no fear. I'm in control. Right? And it kind of calms Isaiah down a little bit. Right, and Ahaz comes after him, and the people come after him, and they want to kill him, and they, they say he's committing treason and all this other stuff whenever he prophesies against Ahaz and what Ahaz is doing. But it says, have no fear. Church, we need to be fearless knowing that the God of the universe is fighting on our side, that he has us, right? There's nothing beyond his reach, nothing beyond his control. The third characteristic uh, we find in verse 15. Also, it says, uh, we, we kind of hit on this, but, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Not only are we to have a gracious, forgiving spirit and an untroubled mind, but we are to present a reasonable defense of our hope. So number three, we need to defend our hope. We need to defend our hope. Listen, we're never to defend ourselves. God does that quite well. But we are to defend the hope that we have in Christ. Because if a person can live with an untroubled, fearless mind, it can be gracious and forgiving in a world like this today, there must be some explanation of, the, of that behavior aside from that man's own personality. If they can actually do this, there has to be an explanation. And people will ask you the source of your power. In a circumstance like that, Peter says, be ready to give them an answer. And it should be a reasonable answer, I believe. Not just an emotional response, not a theological discourse, but an explanation of what God has done in your life and what he can do in the lives of others. And and with the beautiful balance that is maintained in Scripture, Peter says, do so with gentleness and respect, without anger 
and with reverence. Church, we don't need to be argumentative. We can explain quietly and gently and with respect to the healer's feelings what Christ means to us. We are to make a reasoned defense of our hope. This is the third characteristic. And in verse 16, we have the fourth. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The fourth quality of life is to maintain a clear conscience. Maintain a clear conscience. There are two ways to have a good conscience. One is to live a life obedient to the truth because it's our obedience to the truth that, that, that is ultimately our authority. It's when people see something truly miraculous in our lives that they will listen to us. As the, the philosopher Nietzsche said, uh, if you looked more redeemed, I might listen to you about your redeemer. If we genuinely exhibit the life of Christ, then people will be attracted to it. And they will want to know the basis of our power. But you and I know that we do not always behave that way. We fail frequently. Often, we fell in front of people who don't know Christ. And what's our tendency? Cover it up. Become hypocritical. Fake it. Or to give the impression that we don't have problems at all and that we don't fail. So there's another way to have a good conscience. And it's simply this. To confess sin, to receive forgiveness and cleansing from the Lord. That's how you have a clear conscience. Either you do all these things, you be perfect. Or when you fail, and you will fail, you take responsibility. Confess your sin, receive forgiveness and cleansing from the Lord. It's this openness and honesty, which again, I believe will draw people to the Lord, not perfection. Because if we had to wait for perfection, then we're all disqualified. We can never say another word because we're not going to get there. Peter gives us these four great qualities that Christians should exhibit in times of stress or turmoil or trial or suffering. We're to show grace and forgiveness to return good for evil. Secondly, we're to be fearless lion chasers. We're not to give way to anxiety or fear. Third, we need to be able to present a rational defense of hope that we have in Jesus. And finally, we're to maintain a clear conscience. Now, I don't know how this strikes you, but it strikes me as overwhelming. It strikes me as a little difficult as much of the things that God teaches in the Bible can do, it, it strikes me as overwhelming. Because I know this, church. I know that I alone do not have the power to do these things that we're talking about. I don't have the capacity to live a life like this. I can be just as defensive and retaliatory as anybody else. It's just as easy for me to justify and cover up. And there are times where I'm fearful about my witness. There has to be another power. It won't come from me. And so Peter, in these remaining verses, explains the basis of our authority. This is an incredibly difficult passage. As I mentioned at the beginning, there are probably as many interpretations as there are interpreters. It's considered by most religious theologians to be one of, if not the hardest passage in all of Scripture. And we have nine minutes to cover it. In fact, Martin Luther, <laughs> one of... Just, you know, the, 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 great Protest, the great fathers of the Protestant Reformation is quoted with saying something to the effect of, I'm not sure what Peter means in this passage. It's that difficult. So we're going to read the passage, and then I'll go back and briefly explain what I think Peter's trying to say. Uh, although we will not be able to unpack everything in these five to six verses because there's so much to read and understand. We won't even get close. And if I'm being honest, I don't even think I'm going to do this passage justice but I do believe that God's word does not return void, so we'll do our best. 
So here we go. We're going to read through these real quick, and then I'm going to kind of go back and talk about them. Starting in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God uh, for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So much is happening here. So let me start with this. The key to this passage, I believe, is verse 17, the first one we read. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. As you remember, this is wrapped into the theme of this book. It's better, to, it's better for you to do God's will, to do what is right, even though you suffer injustice. Now, we might respond by saying, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about, right? Peter doesn't live in our world. He lives in a different world. He doesn't live in today. He doesn't know what's going on today. You have to stand up for your rights. You have to fight. You, you'll get nowhere in the world if you're living like that today. You've got to be combative, got to make your opinion known on Facebook. You've got to call out injustice and be a voice of injustice for everyone and anyone, no matter their circumstance or situation. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow his footsteps. We read that in 1 Peter 2.21 a few weeks ago. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Church, your situation is not unique. We as believers are not omitted from the suffering of this world. And in fact, the only just man who ever lived suffered injustice. First part of verse 18, so powerful, four very important words for our faith. For Christ also suffered. For Christ also suffered. That should honestly be very encouraging. That should be freeing. That should be liberating. Why? Because we serve a God that knows what we have been through. Jesus has experienced things that we experience. Just those first four words are basically a mic drop moment. It's as if we, we that, if that's all we heard today, that would be enough because that shows that Jesus relates to us. What do I mean by that? Why is that encouraging? Because suffering is hard enough as it is, right? Suffering could be tough. And that's why it's called suffering and not like enjoying or vacationing or, or something else. It's called suffering because it's hard. Suffering is tough, but what is tougher than suffering? Seemingly suffering alone. That's harder than suffering. It might not be objectively true, but sometimes we can feel like we're suffering alone. And you know what this verse does? It tells us straight away that you are not suffering alone. Somebody needs to hear this this morning. You are not suffering alone. You might feel some angst because you're going through an emotional trauma. Hear me right now. You are not suffering alone. You might be navigating the death of a loved one, and you feel like there's nobody by your side in this difficult time. Believer, hear me. You are not suffering alone. You feel like this life is one big letdown after another. Lost job, strained relationship, depression, loneliness, fear. Hear me, you are not suffering alone. 
Our God is bigger than your situation. He's bigger than your fear. He's bigger than your loneliness. He's bigger than your relationship troubles. And he is suffering with you. For Christ also suffered. Come on, somebody. That is encouraging news this morning. That should get us excited. You are never walking alone in your hardship. He can identify with you in ways that nobody else can. Understand your thoughts like nobody else can. He knows you. He suffered for you. He died for you. Let him comfort you. Let him lead you. That's what our Jesus wants to do. Verse 18, let's finish this verse. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is a key verse in our faith, church. This verse spells out the idea of substitutionary atonement, which is a big phrase that simply means this, that the cost of our sin is far greater than we can ever hope to afford, but Jesus suffered and died on our behalf so that we can be reconciled with God. Through Jesus, we have a way to the Father. He is the mediator. He stands in between the Father and us on our behalf. Now, if we stop there, we're good. That's a great message from verse 17 and 18. But from here, things can get a little confusing. Because there's a lot packed into these verses. In fact, let me see if I can break down everything that Peter talks about in this passage that we read a few moments ago. Here we go. Let me give you the list. Christ died for our sins once and for all to bring us to God. We covered that. He died and was made alive spiritually or in the spirit. He preached to the spirits in prison. Those spirits disobeyed during Noah's day when the ark was being prepared. Only eight people were saved on the ark. They were saved by water. The water symbolizes baptism. Baptism saves us, but not by outward washing, uh, but by the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Baptism saves us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ now sits at the right hand of God. All spiritual powers are now subject to him. That's just a list of things that are covered in those four or five verses. Just to list out all that seems confusing. So what exactly is Peter talking about here? Let's shorten the list a little bit. Let's knock a few things out. Let's combine a few things. Let's see if we can make this make a little more sense. Christ died. He preached to the spirits in prison. Eight people were saved on the ark. The floodwaters represent baptism. Baptism saves by the resurrection of Christ. Christ now sits at the right hand of God. Okay, that's better, but still a little bit unclear. The one thought that runs through this passage has to do with Jesus Christ. Peter wants to stress that just as Christ suffered unjustly, even so we may suffer unjustly. Uh, and he uses Noah's story almost as kind of an illustration. All right, he's saying this is what happened to Jesus. Oh, by the way, this also happened to Noah and that can happen to you. So let's move the part about Noah aside for just a moment. And we're left with four statements about Jesus Christ. He died, verse 18. He preached, verse 19. He rose from the dead, verse 21. And he sits at God's right hand, verse 22. Seems a little bit simpler, right? A little bit easier to digest. This passage is all about Jesus. Note how what starts with suffering ends with triumph. Much of the controversy and the theological differences in this passage come from the inclusion of Noah seemingly out of nowhere and the, and the question of who Jesus was preaching to in prison and where was that prison and who were the spirits in this prison. That's, that's kind of where the theology and, and difficulty comes in. And when I read this, I notice that the main point here is that he was crucified but now sits at the right hand of the Father. What starts with the agony of defeat, unjust suffering, ends with the thrill of victory, the vindication through the triumphant Christ. That's the major thrust of this passage. That being said, I'm not suggesting that we glaze over the hard parts or we skip over these difficult uh, situations and these difficult verses. What I am saying is that we don't have time to fully unpack those today. 
But I do want to make a few uh, a note of a few things as we finish. So verse 19, uh, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Okay, again, one of the most debated verses in the Bible. Much of it centers around what Peter meant when he said spirits, which then leads to the question of where is their prison? And then leads to the question of when did this happen? Okay, here's what's important here. Jesus, after his death, after his burial, proclaimed victory. All right, he preached, he proclaimed victory. The enemy may have thought he won. I mean, I don't get it because he's seen the Bible. He knows how this thing's going to play out. He knows the end of the story. It doesn't make sense to me, but maybe he still has hope that, that somehow, some way, he can pull out a victory over God. I don't get it. But, but the enemy thought he had won. Jesus went and proclaimed victory. Death didn't stop him. Death fulfilled his role. He was the ultimate sacrifice. Some believe that prison represented here as hell. Uh, that, that, that Jesus went and he proclaimed victory there. Some believe that his proclamation was, was during the ascension, whenever he was ascending into heaven. And some believe that the spirits are fallen angels or demons. Or since Noah's included in this passage, verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which few, that is eight persons, were being brought safely through water. Some would say that the spirits are all the unsaved that were wiped out in the days of Noah. Now, I'm not going to tell you where I am on this just yet because I'm still working through it myself. But for me, the fact that after dying for my sins, Jesus went and he shouted victory. He went and proclaimed victory. He went and preached victory. That's victory for you and that's victory for me. That's incredible. I might, not, I might not fully grasp everything else that's going on here. I'm not smarter than all the theologians that have studied this for years and years and years and can't come to an agreement. But what I do know is that God shouts victory from the rooftops on your behalf and on my behalf. And lastly, I just want to touch on verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This verse kind of confuses some because he starts off, starts off with baptism, now saves you. But he also continues in saying that baptism in and of itself does not save. It says not as a removal of dirt from the body. So it doesn't do, the, the actual action of water washing over you doesn't actually do the cleansing. All right, it doesn't remove the dirt from your body. That's already happened through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and your acceptance of such. All right, so, so then it goes on, and it, and it says uh, that instead it's saving you, that, that you're being saved uh, through, and baptism is, is a representation of your salvation, the inward faith, all right, it's representing the inward faith that you've already made, you've already placed in Christ. Uh, it's, it's you demonstrating that inward faith. Baptism is really a symbolic gesture. It shows that there's been uh, an internal regeneration, I love that idea of being regenerated, right? And that's what happened after the flood. See, God flooded the world, and then he regenerated the world. He flooded the world, and then he made all things new. And you know what he does when he takes hold of us? He makes all things new, right? There's a regeneration that happens. And so we follow up with that in water baptism, we're going to have uh, baptisms 
coming up probably in just a few weeks. And so if you're interested in that, we're, there, there's a, a place on the website. You can go uh, legacycity.church slash baptism. You can sign up there. You can come talk to me or somebody else and we'll get you hooked up. But baptism ultimately doesn't save you. It's you demonstrating, hey, I am a follower of God. My salvation is complete. I know Jesus. I trust Jesus. I love Jesus. And I want to show the world by being baptized. It's a special time. It's a special moment in a believer's life to go through baptism. But here's what I want to say as we move on. We're going to sing a song and we're going to worship together. But I want to invite you, if you don't know Jesus, if we're talking through all this and I'm going through all this and, and I'm talking about these, this way you're supposed to live and this, this, these characteristics you're supposed to have and, and what Peter says, this is what a believer looks like and then the blessings will come. And, and if you've never experienced those blessings, if you don't really know that you can embody those things because you don't know that the Holy Spirit is living within you, that you are indwelt with the Spirit of God, man, I'd just love to talk with you. Love to, to have a conversation I'd love to pray with you. love to encourage you in some way if I can. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to worship together. And we're not going to call you up front or, or anything like that. But if you want to talk, if you want to pray, if you just want to have a conversation, I'll be in the middle section in front of the communion. I'd love to do that with you. If you didn't get a chance to take communion early and you want to do that, you've got some time here. This is our last song together uh, this morning. And then we're going to, uh, Heather will come and, and close us out and then, the four of you that like soccer can go watch the World Cup final. I'm one of those four. So let me pray over you and then we'll, uh, we'll jump right into it. And feel free to please come uh, ask for prayer and respond as God's leading you to respond. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your servant Peter and the words that he, uh, that he gave us in this letter, the words that you gave us through him. God, I thank you for the example that you lived out. I thank you for the example that you've given us through your many servants. And, and Father, I just pray right now, as maybe you're working in this room, Holy Spirit, maybe you're moving in this room, maybe you're softening hearts, maybe you're bringing down walls and breaking chains here in this place, God. Maybe you were thinking about the suffering that we're, that we're experiencing in our lives and we're realizing, you know what, uh, that, suffering, that suffering can be healed, that suffering can be taken care of, or you know what, better yet, I can just walk through that suffering a little bit easier, re resting in the fact that Jesus suffered also, that I'm not suffering alone. So as you're moving and working in this place, God, I pray that this would just be a sweet, sweet time as we worship you, as we pray to you, as we praise you. And God, if there's anyone in here who doesn't know you, I pray that today will be the day that they put their trust and their faith and their hope in you. We love you so much, Jesus. We cannot wait to see what you're gonna do in this place in these next moments and in the next weeks ahead. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.